0: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast Hang on a minute, who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway?
1: I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey, in the constellation of Casterburys. I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's gonna save your lives and all 6 billion people on the planet below. You got no a problem with that? No. In that case...
2: allons
3: <laughs>
1: Would you like a jelly baby?
4: My Sarah Jane. Oh, my. oh look, rocks. Oh,
5: really Wibbly wobbly, timey rhyming.
6: Hey, watch it, space man. Boy, watch it, Earth girl. I will teach you the folly of your words, Doctor.
0: Uh, Smith, Dr. John Smith.
4: And this is Duggan. He's a
1: detective who's been kind enough to catch me. Oh, tell me who you.
4: you always were an optimist, weren't you? Thank you for the compliment. Hello. Mate in six moves, Master. Hey
7: everyone, and welcome to episode number six of Who True Freaks? an Italian-sponsored show hosted by Americans about a British fictional character. Just more proof that The Doctor can resolve differences between practically anyone. Hello again, my name's Sean Engel, and this month, our look at the, in our look at the myriad different iterations of the man known only as The Doctor, we're going to bring you three, count them, three episodes from The Man Who Redefined the Character for the Modern Era. In 2004, after many years of wandering around without a television series, Doctor Who was ready to make a comeback to the small screen. After a failed attempt to get a new series with the 1996 Fox-produced Doctor Who movie, showrunner Russell T Davies, as well as head of the BBC, as well as head of BBC drama Julie Tranter, felt that a more mainstream actor needed to be selected to portray the title character. The first person who came to mind was Christopher Eccleston. This was a bold move, as finally Doctor Who had an actor who was far more recognizable in the role, and as many would claim, far more photogenic. This along with an increased budget for special effects and some of the best writing talents in the industry led to a new era for the series, which revitalized the franchise and made it into one of the most popular shows not only in the UK, but for the first time popular as well in the United States. And today we're going to look at a trio of some of the best shows in Eccleston's season, including Dalek, The Empty Child, and The Doctor Dances. And when I say we, I'm not speaking simply of myself and the various voices that inhabit my mind. Hush now, I'm recording a show. <laughs> I'm speaking of podcasting's elite crew of Whovians. First off, we've got our UK contingent, beginning with, in no particular order, Mr. Dave Walker of Flash Legacies. How's it going, Dave?
1: Not too bad. How's things there?
7: Obviously, it is very early in the morning, so (laughs) that sucks. As well, and we also have the, uh, well, past his prime, but still willing to buy by foolish things such as the concept of aging, Mr. Andrew Leyland.
6: I'm not past my prime angle. I'm in
7: my prime. And the almost in his prime, who just recently as well celebrated his big 30th birthday, Mr. Stephen Lacey. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Lots of countries have a South. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Over here Uh. in the States, we have uh, my co-host over at the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror, Mr. Chris hair metal hero, Tyler. Hey, Chris.
8: Fantastic.
7: <laughs> what accent
8: was that? I have no idea. <laughs> God, too that early. was Scottish. I'm, I'm still kind of shit-faced. So. It was
7: German. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, we also have the voice talent of the new Two True Freaks internet radio network and co-host of Back to the Bins and also starting up, I heard an Avengers podcast. Uh, what's that all about?
9: Oh, uh, good morning. Uh, over Back to the Bins, we're going to expand into covering some of the... Uh, whatever we whatever strikes our fancy in the Avengers. Okay, cool. That'll Woo! be
5: interesting. Awesome. Mrs. Peel, Kathy Gale.
7: <laughs> exactly. I, I expect an, uh, a ribbing, interested uh, synopsis of D-Man. That'll be awesome. Um,
9: oh, yes,
7: yes. Uh, Mr. Bill Robinson, if I didn't mention. And uh, last but not least, uh, the lone female member of the Demonsicore Family Podcast, host of Hope of All Trades, and the person who's going to add the much-needed bit of feminine balance to this to this sausage fest, Ms. <laughs> Hope Mullinex. Hey, Good Hope. Good morning. And I think we might even have an additional... Well, no, let me see. He's not on yet. No, he's not here. Well, we'll skip about that. He might be making a, a little comeback here in a few minutes. Uh, we might have a special guest on just to say a few words before we get going. But as I've said, uh, we're going to go ahead and start out with our trio of episodes with the uh, coverage of Dalek. And the uh, first uh, person up is Mr. Andrew Leyland, who's going to be delivering the synopsis of that. So take it away, Andrew.
6: <clears throat> Sorry, I was just having a coughing fit. Um, Dalek was written by Joe Ahern and directed by Robert Sheeman originally aired on BBC One on the whoa, whoa, 30th of whoa, whoa, whoa. April 2005. I'm going to stop whoa. you there. you got your director and writer mixed up. Dalek was written by Robert Shearman and directed <laughs> by Joe Ahern. It aired on BBC One on the 30th of April 2005. It was a bad week. Uh, the TARDIS is pulled off course and lands in Utah in 2012 in a museum. Somebody is collecting aliens and making them exhibits. Slithy arms... Sl- Slithene arms hold court with Cyberman heads, and the Doctor and his companion Rose muse about the stuff of nightmares now being reduced to nothing. An army of armed guards show up and take the Doctor to the owner of the exhibit, Henry Van Staten. The Doctor and Van Staten engage in a Who's Dick is Bigger contest, and Van Staten takes the Doctor to meet his only living exhibit, one he has tried and failed to get to speak. When introduced to the life form, the Doctor freaks out. Out and tries to run, but the creature cannot fire his weapon, and merely yells,
4: Exterminate!
6: For the life form is the last remaining Dalek. The doctor reveals that he killed the Daleks, watched them burn, and tortures the creature before telling Van Staten he needs to kill it. Destroy it now! Van Staten orders the Dalek to address him, acknowledge his existence, but the Dalek feels Van Staten is beneath his notice. The Doctor learns that it was the Dalek that fell to Earth, presumably through a time warp, the only other survivor of the Time War. Van Staten takes this opportunity to analyse another alien, the Doctor. Whilst Van Staten tortures the Doctor, he tries to convince Van Staten that the Dalek will kill everyone in the building. Van Staten's arrogance won't let him believe it. Meanwhile, Rose is all fluttery eyelids and coy looks with Van Staten's computer genius, pretty boy Coronation Street guy who used to play Todd Grimshaw, and in an effort to get into Rose's <laughs> tank top, he shows her the captured Dalek. Rose feels compassion for the tortured Dalek, and it in turn confesses that it is ready to die. Rose touches the Dalek, and it reroutes the phramic fr- stab through the negative power blah-blahs, and is given strength because of DNA because her DNA now has time travel disease. Breaking free from its bonds, it kills the scientist and the doctor convinces Van Staten to release him or they are all going to die. Escaping from its cell, the Dalek makes short work of Van Staten's army and manages to regenerate itself and download all information from Van Staten's computer before slaughtering the remaining members of the private army because as part of downloading, it now knows who the Cardassians are. Van Staten... (laughs) Van Staten proves his dickery dickery by sacrificing the others in the building, including Rose and the Pretty Boy Coronation Street guy. Speaking of Rose and Pretty Boy Coronation Street guy, they think they can escape upstairs because no one was watching the show by the time Remembrance of the Daleks heard. The Flying Dalek wipes out more personnel and declares he will speak only to the Doctor. The Doctor tries to convince it to kill itself, but the Dalek race needs to survive. If the Dalek escapes, the planet Earth is under threat, so the Doctor must seal the vault, trapping the Dalek in, but Rose is trapped also. Rose tells the Doctor he's not to blame, and she is exterminated. Or so the Doctor thinks. Unable to exterminate Rose due to contamination from her DNA, the Dalek demands the door be opened or Rose will be killed. The Doctor falls for this and lets Rose and the Dalek out. Pretty Boy Coronation Street guy manages to flee and... tells the Doctor that he has some weapon stashed just in case he ever needed to fight his way out. The Doctor scoffs at this and picks up a huge gun. Rose stops the Dalek from killing Van Stan, and they flee to the upper levels where the Dalek blasts out of the building. With the sun streaming in, the Dalek opens up the external body and basks in the morning light just as the Doctor bursts in and waves his weapon around. Rose won't let him kill the Dalek as the Doctor realises he has become what he despises. Rose's DNA is causing the Dalek to mutate into something non-Dalek and the Dalek causes Roe to order it to kill itself. It explodes in on itself and disappears. Van Staten is dispatched with and the Doctor allows himself to finally mourn for his people and everything else that died in the Time War. Pretty Boy Coronation Street Boy rocks up and Rose wants him to come with them and the Doctor reluctantly agrees as the TARDIS warps away.
2: Good job.
6: Excellent. We can all talk about the show now.
2: <laughs> so, I, I have a question. Go on, um, then. Because I, I only know New Who, I don't really know much in uh, Old Who. Was that the first time we've actually seen the inside of, of a Dalek, it would have looked like?
5: No. No.
2: <laughs> okay, just making sure. Because <laughs> that was one of my points, and I just wanted to double check on that one. Thanks. <laughs> Well, I'll start since nobody else is talking.
7: Well, actually, I would... Uh, for a second, I got myself muted. We have a, a special guest on the show who would uh, like to say a, little, uh, say a few words uh, as he's uh, getting ready to go out and celebrate his birthday. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, host of Better in the Dark and my good friend, Mr. Thomas DJ. Hey, Tom. Yeah, the,
0: the, this bossy, uh, stringy-haired blonde girl in a Union Jack t-shirt showed up and said I gotta go with her soon. Oh, Nice it's really bossy um <laughs> hi guys hello Tom hey,
6: hi Tom hello um, Leyland. hello happy, happy birthday. birthday
0: thank you thank you we, we, um we've
5: all prepared a little song for
0: you mm-hmm. are you ready oh yeah okay do you want
5: to count sin?
7: yes count us count us down three two one
4: Oh,
7: did that not work out as well? As that you damn mid <laughs>
6: it, it didn't work out as well as it did in rehearsal, did it? No, it didn't. That was a
2: freaking masterpiece. What are you talking about? <laughs>
6: okay.
0: Happy birthday, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. And... uh I like was actually a pretty good episode and I have no problem with Christopher Eccleston as a, as a the doctor, although it took me a while to get used to him.
4: Before mm-hmm. you doctor. say
0: that, cause he's basically
8: my doctor because <laughs> I didn't really start watching until knew who. So I enjoyed him. I wish we got more with him.
0: Well, mm-hmm. we all, I'm sure you guys are going to talk about why we didn't get more with him as you know, you go on in this, this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, it, it took a while for me to warm to him, although, oddly enough, the the episode, not this episode, Dalek, which is a great episode, and it kind of, they kind of needed to do that this episode to reestablish the fact that, yeah, Daleks can be badasses, because they were cho- shown as chumps, for like the last couple of <coughs> in the classic, uh, series. But, um, my favorite moment is one that you're going to discuss in the second part of the next episode you're going to talk
7: Okay. Cool. Well.
0: I'll just, uh, just say everybody lives.
7: See, uh, unfortunately, I know Tom that you've got things that you have to do. But yes, I yes, woman,
0: up. I'm coming.
7: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Go, go, satisfy your lady friend.
2: What I hope she slaps you across the oh, face the for coming. calling it's her a woman. <laughs> it uh, might be your birthday, but I hope she slaps you across the face for calling her a woman. Just saying. You better go make her a damn sandwich.
0: it's my day dang it
7: (laughs) well are are there any closing words that you'd like to say before you you have to go tom
0: of course fuck shag matthews
7: (laughs) good night it wouldn't be a who true speaks podcast. happy Happy birthday tom
2: have so much fun get drunk
7: and get nailed
0: see you guys next month all right okay we'll see you around tom thanks all for right. dropping by thanks
2: bye so sean i have to wonder something shouldn't we talk about a little bit of news first because isn't this the first episode of who true freaks since the big matt smith news
7: oh since the uh since the uh departed his uh announcement of his departure yeah we might as well go ahead and mention that uh what what's everyone think about that uh it's what do people not think
5: about? News, it? And the internet can just calm the fuck down. <laughs>
7: yeah, Did, was it pretty much expected that he would be departing after after the season?
2: See, I yeah, heard he to. signed on through next season, so that's why I was sh- shocked by it. Hmm.
6: On every chat show he's been on, and he's been on a lot since last year with the splitting of the series in two and then the Christmas specials, he's answered the question of how long are you staying with the same noncommittal squirming and fidgeting and not making eye contact. And for an actor, he's an astonishingly bad liar. So for anyone who's watched any of his interviews over the past year, it wasn't a surprise that he was leaving.
8: Okay. Well, I just doesn't it, it's just standard operating procedure. I don't think you're gonna have any doctors now do you know seven or eight years. Yeah, I don't think you're gonna get another uh, Tom Baker staying on as long as he
7: yeah. like did.
5: Uh, it's disappointing
7: because I was starting to warm to Matt Smith really well. So
5: that's part of the overreaction. Is people go, oh, but nobody does a Tom Baker esque length. It's like, well, Tom Baker only was the only one who did that. Then you've got um, John Pertwee. Everyone else did three years, mm-hmm. except for uh, Baker too, obviously. Yeah.
2: See, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence because I still haven't warmed up entirely to Clara, so I don't know how I'm going to feel still having this half-lukewarm companion with a new Doctor, because I still really like Smith, so... I don't
7: know. It's going to be okay, because John Hurt's going to be the new Doctor. Ooh, spoilers.
8: Dun-dun-dun!
7: If, if that even
5: goes on. But yeah, that... Oh.
2: I, I heard a spoiler about who he's supposed to be, and I'm kind of on the fence to it.
5: Wow. Um, in the nicest way possible. It, it, keep that one inside your head. Okay.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to spoil it, but, I mean, it, it's a little weird in my brain, but I can see why they did it.
5: Okay. That's well, it. I'm, I'm just going to look forward to seeing the episode about three days after it's been shown. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be at a convention,
2: weekend. man. I'm going to be at a convention during the 50th anniversary, and that's the one thing I'm really upset
7: about. Are, <laughs> are, are <laughs> you considering going over in the UK? Are they, Are you guys planning on going to see it in the theatres, or are you just going to watch for, wait for it on, on the television? No,
6: because it's going to be in the theatres in 3D, and I am so lukewarm towards 3D, I couldn't give a shit about it, to be honest. So if it's <laughs> going to be on the cinema in 3D, I'll wait until it's on telly. No
5: No problem.
2: Well,
6: I, I think it's...
5: I don't think it's going to be in the cinema until it's been on the telly. Okay. I'd be very surprised because it, it would just be ridiculous for them to do that. Doctor Who's Home is on the television uh, first and foremost. And if they put it in cinemas a week before, that would just be stupid.
1: I was okay. thinking that they probably could have done a simulcast type thing where they're showing it in 3D at the same time <laughs> they're showing everything else.
6: They may do, yeah.
5: You know, They'll certainly stick up at the convention. that mm Okay.
6: Oh, okay. So this Dalek episode. Yes. Thank you
7: for dragging <laughs> us back, we were. kicking
6: and screaming, Andrew. Um, Let's go talk about that. Christopher Eccleston, yes, and Billy Piper, who launched the show back in 05. The one thing we do want to say about Chris Eccleston is when the show was announced, it was coming back in God. Was it late 03, early 2004? I don't remember. It
5: was early October 2003. I know because I had to. I was banned from my university library for a week from joyously celebrating the announcement at the start of my term.
6: <laughs> Right, so it was announced that the show was coming back. Rather predictably, the newspapers were all full of Ken Dodd is going to play the Doctor. Alan Davis is going to play the Doctor. Eddie Izzard is going to play the Doctor. And there's nothing wrong with Izzard Davis. I think even I was going to be playing the the Doctor at some point. Even you were going to be playing the Doctor. Primarily, they're known as comedic actors, which is what the show was looked at upon at that point. The announcement that Christopher Eccleston was going to play the Doctor was a masterstroke because it shut up every single tabloid newspaper in one fell stroke. Mm-hmm. It was like, no, we're taking it seriously. We've cast a serious actor. Shut up. And then they undid all that by announcing Billy Piper was going to be cast as his companion. <laughs> yeah,
7: well, and I think that uh, I think that we'll see in the, the the later episodes that Eccleston can pull off some humour pretty well when it's written for him but for this first episode dalek he is really dark i mean i don't think i've seen the doctor this grim in a long time i mean he's he the the confrontation between the doctor and the dalek is just him screaming at him him just violently asking why the dalek is here so this is a this is a vast difference than what we've seen in doctors and to it's a it's an interesting way to sort of set up the character for the uh for the new uh, iteration of the Doctor.
2: I mean, yet they just keep in mind that, like character-wise, he just came out of the Time War. I mean, yeah. this is still a very raw wound to him, and I—I I don't think it's ever been said, but most of the speculation is he's the one that destroyed both races.
7: Okay. Now, uh, speaking of the Time War, do we think that we're ever going to get a, a, a definitive explanation of what happened with that, or will that just be something? I think that, this
8: maybe, November. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what they're going to do so. for the fiftieth? They have to address it at this point. It's been how friggin' long? Eight years? Mm. I mean, that's a long time to dangle that carrot in front of everybody
6: and not tell us. See, I don't want him to. Mm. I think backstory at this point... Point should be left as backstory it's like when you watch We've, star wars and they just mentioned the clone wars it conjures up all these <laughs> wonderful images in your head and nothing that they've done with that since has managed to fire the same imagination that you had in your head of what the clone wars was i think at this point showing the time war would just be a disappointment
5: it would be the same as giving us a definitive explanation for why the doctor left gallifrey which they've never done. There have been hints, but I I don't want to know the definitive reason. I enjoy all the different theories and stuff, and I enjoy the little hints, but I don't want to know that story. I don't want to see it. The little clip of Hartnell in Name of the Doctor is the most I ever want to see. I
2: mean, honestly, if they don't do it in the 50th, I I, I agree, they shouldn't do it at
5: all. But but the Titan Wars are very much a Russell T. Davis thing. Mm -hmm. Um and if I ever you know we saw bits of it in the end of time and that felt like the the final statement on it. Rusty Davis is gone he's the one who had the time war which simplified a lot of Doctor Who things um, that's all we need
7: I can agree with that uh, it's uh, it's Fair nice enough. to it's nice to have his backstory, but I really agree with Andrew that was a perfect uh, metaphor that it's like the Clone Wars It's one of these things that when you hear about it it conjures images in your mind of you know this massive devastation. But we don't need episode one, two, and three, you know, basically showing us the Clone Wars and then taking all that interesting ideas that we had floating around in our brain and putting it to film. So I think that I think that would be that that might not be the best idea.
8: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
7: yes. So,
5: Excellent. So yes. What, what do we think? <laughs> I think for me one of the greatest things in this episode because I I remember watching it, I was at university watching it on my tiny telly in my student halls and I knew there was a Dalek coming, you know like all Dalek episodes it was announced in the title, Mm -hmm. but for me one of the most joyous bits was seeing the invasion era Cyberman helmet from the late Patrick Trown story (laughs) Um, just there is a wonderful little throwaway and the camera just loves that helmet It, it really lingers over it
7: and it was, it, it looked, it really looked beautiful. The idea of a of a person in America just collecting these alien artifacts works really well, especially when the uh, character is sort of being situated in and around, where was he? In? He was in Wyoming? Or was he in New Mexico? Utah. 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 So, so you've got to imagine he's in the middle of this sort of Utah, I'm not saying it's a vast wasteland, but there's areas of it that are pretty much very isolated. So you could kind of get this area where people would be storing these weird artifacts and, you know, you might have a sort of area 51 vibe. So I, I enjoyed the fact that that was, that, that we had a sort of character who was a collector of these weird things that have fallen to earth.
8: So, so uh, any commentary a... there on Americans collecting Dr. Who stuff. <laughs> 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 well, no. Uh, so he, he was in
9: Utah last year by, by the story's date and uh, that's right next to where the NSA now, now keeps, uh, is probably keeping this podcast for us. <laughs> <laughs>
6: uh, you've got a quintessential Eccleston moment in his meeting with Van Staten when he's playing with the alien artifact that he doesn't understand. And the Doctor mm-hmm. takes oh, yeah. it off him and plays with it and shows that it's a musical instrument. And he gives it back to him and Van Staten learns to play it. And the doctor's suitably impressed. And then when he just discards it, Eccleston's face <laughs> completely changes. Yeah. From uh, being about, being happy but, to being, I'm taking this guy down.
2: Talk about actions being louder than words. I mean, I think that's the one thing that really summarized Van Staten the most. Is yeah, like
6: that. His arrogance
2: towards You knew all exactly technology. who his character was from that moment yeah. on.
9: Well, yeah. wait. I I thought he was Agent Clay from Hellboy. <laughs> he,
7: he definitely did not care uh, that he had these amazing things. It was to him they were just they were just items, and yeah, he didn't I, know the. They were a
2: paycheck and a power play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It
7: it was it and it is a kind of it is a kind of trope for Americans or the American people that you know we have all these neat things we enjoy collecting stuff, but you know we may not know the significance or the ramifications of what these things are and obviously didn't you know when he brought in a functioning Dalek to his little underground cave thing and started to torture it to death so
8: there you go
6: and then you've got the great scene where Van Staten introduces the Dalek to the Doctor
5: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Metaltron. it's yeah. a great name and that is it's such a 60s name. You can imagine, because um, they did these uh, short comic strips in the 1960s, and I want to say something like TV Action magazine, and they couldn't use the Daleks. You can just imagine them sitting around and going, OK, we can't use the Daleks. Uh, Metaltrons, they'll do.
1: And that, <laughs> yeah. works, that works perfectly, because that's when the Daleks showed up originally anyway, because he's been around for 50 years at this point.
6: Mm. Um, there was another beautiful bit of acting, but not from Eccleston. When Eccleston freaks out when he sees it's the Dalek, the Dalek tries to fire his gun at him, and when it doesn't work, he lifts it up as if he's looking at it, you know, shaking it to go, why, why are you not looking?
7: It yeah, that's oh, another thing that I was really surprised with. The and, and this is uh, a credit. What was Nick Briggs who was doing the voice of the Dalek?
5: First time on television after doing them really impressively with Big Finish for a number of
7: years. Mm-hmm. He uh, supposedly there's a video somewhere online that he actually did the voice of the Dalek with the uh, sort of uh, distortion thing on uh, you know on camera, and that Eccleston was just yeah.
5: completely freaked out the first it, time. Um, there's an extra on the series one DVD box set which is uh, they've got camera in the read-through of the script for the first time. There, there's several of these sessions, including the first episode. But So they do that, where and Chris Ruckersen goes in, and Nicholas Briggs just starts ranting into the microphone, freaks the shit out of quite a lot of people, including Chris Ruckersen, who just didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. It's quite a wonderful moment of respect to, to this guy who's just screaming exterminate into a <laughs> microphone.
7: And, and it's not just him screaming exterminate. You can actually... Throughout his throughout the show, you can tell he is he is really acting the hell out of the fact uh, 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 acting the hell out of being a Dalek, and it's not just the exterminate. You can tell that he is remorseful that he is the last remaining member of his race. Of course,
4: mm.
7: that will be wiped away here in a few. But uh, uh, Briggs puts forth uh, as good. Uh, a, a run as acting in the show as, uh, Eccleston did. And they played off each other wonderfully. And the moment where, mm-hmm. uh, he tells the doctor after he's told him that he must destroy him and he has to kill him and he has to get rid of him, that he would make a good Dalek. Oh yeah.
9: Just, mm-hmm. yeah.
7: just defined, sort of defined both the Daleks for this uh, run and the doctor and his sort of, his sort of much darker attitude, uh, than we've seen in previous uh, iterations, so uh, it's Nick Brick really impressed me in this episode. It's a great way to bring back the Daleks' as a character.
2: I mean, this this is one of my favorite kinds of dial, uh, Daleks. Um, I was chatting with Shag when we were talking about Matt Smith's season, um, and we were talking about Asylum of the Daleks. And the best kind of Dalek to me is when they're either very human Daleks because then they're super scary. Or when they're like this, and it's a perfect foil for the Doctor, to where, you know, in these cases, the Doctor is more of a monster than the Dalek. I mean, these are my favorite kinds of Daleks.
5: Um, When you say human Dalek, you don't mean the penis-faced Dalek, do you? No,
2: no, I'm talking about how in Asylum of the Daleks, they were very human. It's one of my favorite scenes is when Amy Pond is seeing all the humans... And you see, like, for example, two people touching, and when she shakes her eyes and, like, yeah, shakes her eyes, when she shakes her head, it's actually two Daleks touching, and it's how they view themselves. And then, you know, there's this deep moment that they're always in tin cans and they can never touch. And it's very, very, like, I love those kind of Daleks where they're quote-unquote flawed for their race, but it turns out they're actually more human. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I
5: think about that. <laughs> um Do you want to talk a bit about the other guest cast in this episode? Go ahead. Um because we 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 have got a pseudo companion. he what is he, pretty boy from pretty boy, Coronation Baronage. Farm? Yeah. Emmerdale Street, something like that. Um is he Bruno?
6: Bruno Langley. Bruno
5: yes. So there's him, and then there's a real American and a fake American. And what I like is that the real American sounds like the fake American, and vice versa. (laughs) Um, Specifically, I'm talking about um, Corey something or other who plays Van Staten with his
9: his
5: tiny little evil soul patch. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you can tell the evil. evil.
2: Um, That's where you keep your soul. (laughs) I don't need this anymore. Shave it off. Pshaw! I have a soul. I'm sorry. I broke the the
5: panel. I didn't know that. Anyway, next topic
7: then. I'm so sorry. (laughs) uh, We might as well discuss it. What do we think about the character of Rose, especially uh, her in this episode? Is there anything she
8: won't Um, hit on? Or anyone? (laughs) She's 19 years old. If I was a 19-year-old okay. girl and there was all these dudes around, I'd be hitting on them, too.
7: Yeah, but when yeah, she she, Dalek, she, yeah. she even strokes off the Dalek, too. So <laughs> there you go.
5: <laughs> this no. Do you ass really ass get the rise out, it, out of it? <laughs> hey. well, it's one of those times where as a long-time Doctor e. you just want to scream, Listen to the doctor, would you?
8: <laughs> Don't touch anything. I
5: mean,
2: if she no, listened that, to him that,
8: all the time, though, it would make for pretty boring TV, wouldn't it? Yeah,
2: and, and that brings up a very important point for later on. I mean, because isn't that the reason it came back to life was this residual time energy on her body or something like that? Mm-hmm. Not How only do we see that there? later on um, in uh, freaking oh, what oh was it the, the Cyberman and the Dalek one, but we also kind of sort of see it again with River Song. I mean, that's why she has you know those time time lord quote unquote powers and stuff because of that residual time energy. So it's it's the first time we see this thing that's going to come back over previous, or uh, not previous, I'm, I'm still half asleep, shut up, um, we're going to see it in later seasons. So it, it is really an essential plot point at that moment.
5: And um, it's something they've played with before. Um, I want to say the wrestling in premature, but the idea that if you travel in time through a title, there's something f- fundamental changes. But uh,
2: keep in mind, though, for new Whovians like me, that was the first time I saw it. So it had to be set up in New
5: Whovians. That's why it's very important in the two Doctors, for instance.
6: Um, My favourite character in the whole thing was the Dalek. I think you could have called this one I-Dalek, because it's got an awful lot in common with that episode of Star Trek, I-Borg, except Doctor Who Doesn't Pussy Out at the end. The Dalek remains true to its nature of being an exterminating bastard. Whereas I, Borg, it's all, oh, let's sing, come by, and I'll have hugs because the Borg's got a personality. Whereas in this one, you do. It's a remarkable episode from a writing standpoint. In one, it made the Dalek scurry again. After being years of being a joke, this one episode made you fear them, that one Dalek has the potential to wipe out the entire planet on its own, with no backup. And that was astonishing. The the what-you-going-to-do-sucker-me-to-death are line was brilliant, and then yeah. he just proceeded to do just that <laughs> exact thing. Mm-hmm. The brilliant bit where it shows he's got a brain, where all the army troopers are just shooting at him, and he lifts himself up and electrocutes the floor, was just genius. It, the Dalek was brilliant in it, and yet throughout it you actually felt some modicum of sympathy for it, while still understanding That's the why doctor's it works. point of view. Yeah, it works brilliantly, largely because, as you've said, Nick Briggs' performance and how Christopher Eccleston essentially plays off something with no emotional face. It's all in the voice. That's all he's playing off. Mm -hmm. Yet it's brilliant. Between the pair of them, this could have been a two-hander between just the Doctor and the Dalek. It doesn't need a lot of the other characters. It's it's really well done and really well executed, and it may be my favourite episode from Eccleston's season, and Eccleston is my second... <clears throat> excuse me my second favorite doctor
7: yeah definitely it's 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 a great way to reintroduce you know one of the classic doctor who villains and it, it's also a way to sort of like like we've said to make you sort of sympathize with the Dalek even though he does go around wanting to exterminate everyone so yeah this was a really good really good uh, episode um because we're Wanting to cover like three episodes this time, Uh, do we have any uh, final thoughts about this one?
5: Stairs.
8: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Stairs mean
5: nothing. That was. Remembrance of of the Daleks. Forget it. I
1: know. I'm sorry. I saw Remembrance of the Daleks. That was burnt into my brain since I was four. I was terrified. (laughs) It's the Um... first
5: Doctor Who memory I have that hmm. through the eyestalk bit coming up after Sylvester McCoy.
1: Yeah, see him here. So
5: I've never understood the joke. But well, yeah.
1: I don't know why they stood there. The Dalek has a freaking laser attached to its arm. It could shoot them anyway. It's uh, like, it, they're just standing like one floor up and I they think, don't keep running.
7: I think it may be from that, oh, what was it? Was it Genesis of the Daleks with uh, Tom Baker? The one with the Rastafarian... Androids. That's
6: Destiny of the Daleks, isn't Destiny? it? Destiny, <laughs> okay.
7: The, the one where he climbs up the stairs and says, bye bye thinking really cleverly
6: that he's invaded the Daleks. Cause, yeah, oh, well, that was more Douglas Adams taking the piss, wasn't it? That,
7: that makes sense. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think we've discussed you know the favorability and sort of irritability of Douglas Adams. But, but uh, if everyone's ready, we can uh, go ahead and well, head along. Oh, well, go ahead, Stephen. Oh, oh Will, you too? Go ahead. Go. Well,
5: I, uh, I just... Oh. Go ahead, Stephen. Okay, I just wanted to do a little, especially as uh, Shag's not here, a little bit on the background of this episode, because this is the first time that the new series adapted uh, a story that previously existed and had been released. Um, It's done it three times. Uh, There was this, there was the Cyberman 2 part of next year, and then there was Human Nature, Family of Blood. But this was the first time. Rob Shearman had become quite well known for writing plays for Big Finish. Doctor Who plays and not just that incredibly good ones Um, the Holy Terror which featured Frobisher a shape changing penguin as the companion Um, (laughs) followed up by one of the best 8th Doctor ones which I now can't ah The Chimes of Midnight but his third one was a play called Jubilee which featured the Daleks, or rather a Dalek. Um, Do- Six Doctor and Evelyn end up in an alternate British universe where there's been one Dalek captured and chained in the Tower of London for a century after the Doctor had helped beat back a Dalek invasion in, like, 1903. Um, and this one Dalek... It's sort of is ridiculed a bit like we've ridiculed the Daleks as a society for you know a decade or more. It, it's a, a pop culture thing. It's a figure of fun, and nobody takes it seriously. And the way the Dalek asserts itself and and its evilness across that is really what. Russell Davis wanted to have with introducing the Daleks, knowing that, oh, everyone's made jokes about not going upstairs for years, and oh, Daleks pepper pots on wheels and all of that. <coughs> uh, he wanted that sense of menace and of threat, which is why Rob Shearman wrote this episode, so he adapted the themes rather than the, the plot itself of his audio. Awesome. I knew we had you on the show for some
7: reason, aside from <laughs> good looks, Demon. I, I appreciate you sir, bringing it. Go away. I appreciate... no, I, I'm glad You're all here just to here. make me look good. Well, no, I'm glad to have you here because, you know, you have so much of a knowledge base above and beyond, you know, just watching the show. So I appreciate you coming on and doing this. But, uh, if, oh, thank you very much. Uh, if no one else has any more to say about the episode of Dalek, we're going to move on to our next – oh, go ahead, Will.
9: Did you catch the reference to Bad Wolf in this episode, yeah. which is the overlying theme for, you know, uh, the, whole, the whole season?
6: Yeah, which the cold name of the helicopter at the beginning.
9: It, was, it, it doesn't
5: was, work. It was, it was Bad Wolf one. It was Air Wolf one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Bad Wolf I a fantastic cast? Because <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the season, spoilers, it's revealed that Bad Wolf is a message throughout time to Rose, but she doesn't hear. She can't hear the helicopter land. The helicopter lands before the TARDIS materialises.
4: Mm.
6: So it's the it's. It's the worst, biggest. No, not The helicopter lands after the opening credit sequence. The turn landed oh, in three credits But still, but, she's not. But the Rose helicopter. can't she... heard it. Yeah, she's, she's the point you make it. Yeah, there's no way that she could have heard that. So
5: unless she was
2: in the
7: room with the person
2: you know who there that, was, like, they were planning on escaping.
7: Oh, yeah. Okay, one at a time. Hope.
2: I was just saying, like maybe it's one of the things that, like you know. The message was put there in hopes that she heard it because, you know, the doctor didn't always hear Rose's messages to him in season four. Even. Because you can put a message, but whether or not someone sees it is up to them. Or hears it, so. Well, but except
5: that she's placing the message for herself. So.
1: I thought she may have been taken to a security room or something where she heard it over the radio.
5: Mm, Mm. But they did just get captured. I mean, the way that they put the Bad Wolf references, Russell Davis basically phoned the ball his writers and said, yeah, get some reference to Bad Wolf in there. Just put the words in. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Well, eh, maybe it was just for our benefit then. You
8: know, yeah. you know, throwing it out there.
5: It's the one reference that really doesn't work. Um, but anyway.
8: All right.
7: Well, if we are ready, we'll move on to our second episode we're going to cover. And I've got the synopsis for this. And this one is The Empty Child. Uh, it was first broadcast on the 21st of May, 2005. It was the ninth episode of the new series. It was written by Stephen Moffat. In fact, I think, was this his first writing credit for Doctor Who?
5: Second. Second, okay. Well, it's, it, yeah, the you know, <laughs> comic relief special is his first. Okay.
7: Oh, you mean the what? Was that the one with...
5: Uh, yeah, that's a fatal death. Oh, Rowan As the doctor. Oh,
7: that was... <laughs> Okay, it was directed by James Hawes, produced by Phil Collison, and executive produced by Davies Garner and Mal Young. Cast included, of course, Eccleston as Doctor, Billy Piper as Rose, John Barrowman, here we go, as Jack Harkness. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that'd bring out something in Hope. Uh, Florence Hoth as Nancy, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Albert Ballantyne as Jamie, and Richard Wilson as Dr. Constantine. The story opens with the Doctor and Rose following a cylinder through time and space. Since the cylinder is mauve, the universal color for danger, the Doctor realizes that it's something he needs to take care of since it's headed toward... Wait for it... The center of London, England.
2: Oh Earth. god, we don't no want that coming.
7: Yeah, surprising. I guess not. The Doctor lands the TARDIS, and he and Rose walk to a nearby restaurant to ask if the diners have seen anything recently that has fallen from the sky. Of course, the doctor doesn't realize that he's landed right during the height of the Blitz, and the di- as the diners heed the air raid siren and leave for their shelters. Rose then sees a young boy calling for his mummy, but as she heads to the rooftop to try and find him, she gets tangled in the ropes of a barrage balloon and floats away. Stupid Rose! <laughs> searching for the doctor, or searching for Rose, the doctor heads back to TARDIS, only to hear the phone box in the police box ringing. The doctor prepares to answer, but a young lady tells him not to. Ignoring the request, the doctor answers anyway, and he hears the same plea that Rose did. A young boy calling for his mummy. Meanwhile, Rose is floating away over the skies London when suddenly her grip gives out and she falls to her death. End of story. Hooray! Uh, Yay! No, wait, I'm sorry. Oh. That actually didn't happen. She was actually rep- rescued by Jack Harkness, roguish time agent who catches Rose in a tractor beam from his cloaked ship that's been sitting in front of Big Ben because when a television show is set in London and you're legally required to show Big Ben at least once. Jack heals Rose's burnt hands with some nano genes that were present in the ship and hopes that she'll use her hands to grip onto another
5: object that might be rope-like. And
7: making reference to his penis! Uh-huh.
5: We cut back... I did not need an image of his penis in my or, head.
2: I did, thanks for his that. His penis is in your head? What? Uh,
9: uh, my
5: god. This has
7: turned dark, hasn't it? We cut back to the doctor who has tracked the girl to her home, and she and other homeless children and her children were sitting down for a meal while the homeowners are inside their fallout shelters. Before the doctor can get any information from the girl, now revealed as Nancy, there's a knock at the door as a gas mask wearing child tries to enter, asking for his mummy. Nancy tells the kids, sending the doctor to leave because that isn't the child, and if it touches you, you will become as empty as he is cut back to Jack and Rose, who are discussing the mauve cylinder that crashed in between Jack trying to get into Rose's pants. Jack says that he'd be willing to sell the item to her for a price, and Rose takes his offer under some consideration, provided she'd run it by her partner. At the same time, the doctor meets Nancy on the street and asks her about the pool. She mentions the thing fell from the sky, is somehow related to the boy, and is now guarded by members of the RAF. She and the doctor set off for a hospital near the crash site, where the doctor encounters Dr. Constantine. An army medic who's been treating patients who all have similar symptoms to the strange boy who's been chasing the doctor and Nancy. The doctor examines the comatose victims and sees that all of them seem to have a gas mask fused to their face. Constantine explains that the cylinder crashed near a young boy, Nancy's brother, and that when anyone touched the boy, they turned into these unliving things. The doctor tries to get more information from Constantine, but a strange transformation happens to him and he succumbs to the same fate as the rest of the occupants of the hospital. Jack and Rose find the doctor at the hospital, and after an examination of the sleeping victims, Jack admits that he was trying to con the pair into buying the crash cylinder, which we learned was from a medical ship, and that he knew a bomb would drop on it, destroying it before they could figure out what it was. We then cut back to Nancy, who has gone back to the house that she was dining, where she was dining in before, but as she was, as she's being stalked by the masked child, boy. I need to write these notes better. The boy corners her in the house, asking her if she's... One last time. Holy hell. Yes, I'm horrible at this. The boy corners her in the house, asking if she's her mummy. At the same time, all the sleeping patients at the hospital awaken as well, surrounding Docker, Jack, and Rose, eerily chanting, Are you my mummy? And there we go, the uh, episode, The Empty Child, which, unfortunately, I initially thought was the unearthly child, and that would have made for an odd... uh, sort of um, combination with this episode. So, what do we think of uh, The Empty Child? I love it. <laughs> Fucking creepy. Yeah, this was also this was a really creepy vibe, especially at the end with the very zombie-like patients surrounding the doctor and Jack and Rose and the kid just saying, are you my mummy over and over again, you not being able to communicate with it. It's a I mean, really terrifying, almost Twilight Zone-esque sort of uh, feel. He is-
1: it kind of had a lot of zombie things going on in the first season or so because you've got the zombies in the second episode and the zombies at the start of the next season as well. So they they kind of like zombies at this point. Sorry, no, I've killed things. Nope. like a zombie. <laughs> uh,
8: anytime you have a creepy kid, it just oh, oh man, creepy creepy kids drive me up the wall. The Can only talking crazy- is sing song. Oh, in a, in a, when you have a, a featureless cre- creepy kid, just. Ugh.
2: Yeah, it, and like, honestly, gas masks are already very eerie and scary because of the connotation behind them. Mm-hmm. And add that to a child, and then add that to a really creepy, like, monkey doll. Because that, that monkey doll mm-hmm. is scary in Toy Story 3. <laughs> it's going to be super scary in Doctor Who.
1: It's probably from Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonder. Oh, dear God,
7: mm-hmm. why did you have to bring that in here? Please. <laughs>
1: The
9: only like, other creepiest kid that I, I can think of is the one from uh, from Pet Cemetery. Ooh. Oh
1: <laughs>
7: Yeah.
9: Now I'm gonna be
7: uh, with uh, you. But you also build. also it being set uh during the backdrop nice, of the Blitz, uh you know, it makes sense that they would all be wearing that ma- gas mask, But uh the fact that the gas masks are now fused to their face, that's even more creepy that if they can't take them off. It's a permanent Fixture on them, so that just makes the whole aesthetic look of uh, these these weird, eh, for lack of a better word, zombies, uh, to make you really creeped out. Well, yeah, yeah. The
1: transformation of Doctor Constantine really oh, freaked me out the God. first time I saw
7: it. Even watching uh, it a second
5: time, that was disturbing. Yeah, and it was going to be more disturbing. They uh, they were they removed the sound of uh, his skull cracking.
7: Oh dear God. Ooh
5: which was originally supposed to have been in and then was uh, taken out. I believe you can still see it on the DVD. Um, but, yeah. Uh, okay,
2: I can't um, talk about this. I've tried to talk like five times. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. There are several points I like about this episode, and there is a reason why I wanted to do these two episodes because they're my two personal favorites. For one, we really get to see a chance of Stephen Moffin, and it's kind of a preview of what we're going to see when he takes over for Doctor Who. But also, I just love Jack coming in because i I've talked about this before with Shag, but male companions often interest me more than female companions, and it's not just for their pretty faces and nice asses. But I think the relationship that a male companion brings to the doctor and to have that like, kind of buddy and to have that friend is different than the whole Mary sue romance. Are they going to get together? Are they not going to get together? And Jack is a, just a great all-around character to me. He's one of my top probably Five favorite companions So I absolutely adore him In this episode too Because you within five minutes Know exactly who Jack is And then he surprised you, surprises you at the end And ends up not being a character And grows into this wonderfully strong companion And the strong character That we see at the end of this season Comes back again in season four And all throughout Torchwood
8: I, was, When I first watched this I could not fucking stand him Really? I couldn't stand him. I'm like, who's this fucking prick? Like, oh, he's so cool, and he's got cool gizmos and stuff. I'm like, I re- really, I really did not like him at the yeah, start. by the by the, the end of the so. season, I, I loved him. And then yeah, he, because you like know, we what have to see his, his
2: lowest point before he grows as a character, and this is his lowest point because there's a few times in this two-parter that he leaves, and you're like, oh my god, he's abandoning them. Shit. <laughs> yeah. And so to see him this sleazy, and to see how he grows into being a noble character, because if you look at Jack now, and then look at Jack and uh, the children, oh, that Torchwood episode, it's the five yeah, things, children
7: he, of birth. yeah,
2: when he, when uh, spoiler alert, is that okay? Anyone? Yeah, go, go for it. Yep. When he loses Yonzo, like that, those are two totally different characters, and I, you have to see him as this sleazeball before he can turn into that noble hero.
8: Yeah. No, I, I I definitely get you, but it was like, on first impression, I was like, I really don't like this guy.
5: Well, and <laughs> like, I'm wondering, like I, you said. Go ahead, Stephen. I never had a first impression. Um, I genuinely don't know why, but I never watched this on its original transmission. I, which is weird, because I have very distinct memories of watching the previous episode, Father's Day. Because um, it was my last Friday at uni- uh, last Saturday at university, it was uh, five of us crammed in my room watching it before we then went to our Leavers party. But I don't recall why I didn't watch it. So my first experience of Jack was Boomtown. Um, but he, when I finally saw this on DVD like a year later, it was phenomenal, and I really understood and liked Jack more with the, the proper introduction we get in this episode, especially a scene that's going to occur in the next episode. So I won't mention it now. But I think he co- was a. It's a it, very different and interesting addition. Throughout the series, they play with, like, companions, people who could be companions, like Clive in Rose. Obviously, we had the failed companion in in Pretty Coronation Farm Boy. Uh, and then we get Jack.
1: Hmm. Are we counting this as his first appearance or his second appearance after season three or four happened? Because we had the face of Bo in the second season? Or the second episode? <laughs>
8: See, that's what I ended up when it when it finally got to that point, when he's this he's sitting, you know, three seasons away talking to Tenant's doctor and he says that was the face of but Bo- I was I mean, that killed me. Like, oh my god, what a fantastic reveal. Oh man, that was good stuff. But we're not talking about that. Sorry. Sorry.
7: <laughs> do you do we think that uh Barrowman was cast in this role because of his uh well, do you think this was something that Davies cast because, you know, maybe Davies wanted to get a little friendly with Berriman, or do you think it was just
5: simply... Well, he, he's never cast people because he wants to shag them at all. Absolutely not. Not Russell Tovey at all. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. If you've ever read The Writer's Tale, so many pages are basically Rusty Davis spanking off over Russell Tovey. <laughs> all right,
7: well, I'm glad I brought that up. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <coughs> All right, again, I'm coming back to. I'm going to come back to the character of Rose. How, how do we think uh, Rose has progressed uh, over the course of time up into this episode? Because Rose is just really doughy eyed over Jack. How
2: could I mean, you, you guys were be, just Sean? talking about how you know R- Rose flirts with everything. I mean, this is a good foil showing how Jack flirts with her, and I, I think it's a really nice essential thing that sets up and uh, in the future episodes her relationship with the Doctor because before, you know, you had Adam and they were kind of flirty and the Doctor mentioned it, but this was the first time, like, someone really takes an interest in Rose and she really takes an interest back and how that affects the Doctor.
5: Yeah, Mickey's not exactly a a threat, as it were. (laughs) He's that zero threat.
1: He still is the the best character arc. He's awesome. Sorry.
8: I was going to say he blew up Starfleet, but, oops, spoilers.
5: (laughs) Oh, God, that was him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. Uh, it's on my level of engagement with the film.
1: It's, it's, yeah, um, shush. Uh, some people haven't seen it.
0: Um, oh, shit, oh, keep I'm sorry. that way.
5: <laughs> That's just mean. <clears throat> anyway, we were talking about Doctor Who. Um... I think for me, when especially when I finally saw it for the first time, it really shows how far the mill, uh, the special effects house, had come from the start of the series through to you know 10 episodes in. Because at the start of the series, there were some you know, ropey effects like the nesting intelligence uh, at the end of Rose that's basically just an amorphous blob that doesn't look like it's particularly well integrated with everything else. Then you get these glorious shots of London during the Blitz that I think is still one of the best effects they've ever produced for Doctor Who.
1: It is all kind of sepia-toned a little bit. It, it's all kind of dulled down in a way throughout the entire episode. Um, was that them, or was that just the lighting
7: director?
5: I, th- I think that's trying to keep it in line with the tone of the rest of the show.
7: Mm-hmm. It was. It was definitely a very. It, it had a very dark feel to it. But surprisingly, the character of the Doctor uh, was a lot lighter than what we mm-hmm. saw in the previous uh, one that we talked about, Dalek. I mean, in Dalek, he was very grim and very uh, determined and wanting to kill uh, the Dalek. But in this one, he's he's joking. Uh, you actually, like Hope said, you actually can kind of see what's going to come in the next season with the Tenet uh, Doctor. You know, he's uh, the whole thing about, you know, when uh, the little boy is asking for his mummy. he says what no one here but us chickens you know it, it's well, those I, sort of crazy quirky lines that he's <laughs> delivering
2: i think that's important though just because of the plot and the time and the setting i mean because they're in the middle of world war Two in the london blitz if he was like sitting at a table with a bunch of children and being that dark as he is in dalek the most poor kids are going to be crying over their food i mean it's I think if it was a like a dark character on top of a dark setting and a dark plot, it would just be a. It wouldn't have the same life affirming humans are awesome that it has in the second half in uh, the Doctor Dances.
9: Mm-hmm. Well, this was his uh, this was his lighter persona, Mister Spock, time traveling U boat captain. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I always just, I, this is a side note, but I always love seeing the doctor with kids. I, I love how he addresses children uh, opposed to addressing, you know, his companions and other people.
7: Well, mm-hmm. and that seems to be one of the things that, uh, I don't know whether this was the BBC or that I know Tom Baker loved doing, is Tom Baker loved, you know, going out and meeting with children and, uh, you know, uh, you know the the idea of the doctor you know, uh engaging children and getting them interested in science and whatever it was been sort of a, a a trope of the show for the longest time and yeah the fact that the character the doctor deals well with children in this episode is uh, but uh, it really works for him as well
9: can anybody uh, um, i noticed something about the music and to me it seemed more reminiscent of some of the earlier prior to the to The relaunch in this season that the music was more episode centric. In that, for me, when we get to um, Matt Smith and and David Tennant, it seems like there's always a theme. There's you know like Tennant had a theme, Matt Smith has a theme. You know Matt Matt Smith has the that that always seems to underline. Or there's 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 a character theme. These episodes to me didn't seem to have that, and I kind of enjoyed them more. Is that it, it? Got me more into the episode. And I don't, I don't know if there is a quote-unquote Eccleston theme. Does, does anybody... Has anyone noticed that? There,
5: there's the Time Lordy theme, which pops up throughout that... That thing, which starts in the very first episode and continues through. Um, I think... I don't know. Murray Gold, especially in season one. I, it, it, I really like him on the Matt Smith stuff, I really don't like him on the Tennant and Eccleston stuff, because it seems like either he's just writing generic music to go underneath it, or it, it, his pastiches don't work, especially that god awful cue that opens the series, um, or he just gets so overblown in a lot of the Tennant stuff, especially the specials, where it's just like, music, 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 tell the audience how to feel with music, 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 and the mix is so bad, it's horrible.
9: I mean, this this seemed more more subtle. I mean, it it. I mean, right. I mean, those just beat you over the head. In in some of the later seasons, it it, it seems. In here, it, it just. I don't know. It it seemed more like what it's supposed to be background music. It does set a theme, but it doesn't smack you in the face.
5: It compliments,
9: Mm-hmm.
5: Rather than attempting to create by itself.
9: And we've dropped it. The
6: thing is <laughs> no, gone. You know, no 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 the no. major thing I took away from this episode was how strong is Rose's upper arm strength oh yeah because <laughs> it's it's not just the carried away on the, the the zeppelin thing it's how she's holding herself if you've ever climbed a rope how she's holding herself for the, the duration of this where she's just clinging for dear life that's not possible no. unless Rose is the incredible Hulk
5: <laughs> yeah I did have to she Spoilers tried the anniversary <laughs>
7: She did try uh, on occasion to wrap her leg around so she could kind of rust herself on her leg but she was holding it with her upper arms the entire time and uh, yeah it, it it did make sense that she'd have rope burns which uh, led to the And then she nanochains.
9: still and then she still held held on to the rope with the rope burns yeah because she slid down that rope I mean I don't know if anybody else has ever got rope burned. that yeah. hurts
1: oh
7: yeah well
1: the op- the other option is death so you might go <laughs> yeah, with the beam
7: that's true. That makes sense, but um,
3: I choose death. <laughs> <laughs>
6: I choose this. This one's all right. I'm kind of on the fence. I think it's. I think it's horribly overrated. But that's largely the fault of what it's become since it erred. Mm-hmm. That's not really the episode's fault. Some of the dialogue's wonderful. Some of it's yeah. very Moffity. I um, love
1: the grandfather line from Doctor Constantine and Christopher Eccleston going, yes, I know the feeling, since he's yeah. basically killed every, everyone in his family, and yeah. I don't know if we know anything else about what happened with Susan since then. I assume <laughs> she's dead too.
5: Oh, she was killed off in the Big Finish. Audience.
1: Oh. Oh. It
5: was, it was a Spoiler. Bad, day, bad day for the Doctor. <laughs> Lost his grand grandchild, his great-grandchild, and his companion. Ooh. But Graham Garden played the monk, so hey ho. <laughs> again, <laughs> everyone yes. else is going. Who the fuck's Graham Garden?
6: Yeah,
7: the, the, again, people across the pond will not get that reference.
6: Sorry, Stephen. Um, well, speaking of which, did anyone else notice Victor Meldrew? Yep. I'm presuming Dave and Stephen will have noticed Victor Meldrew.
7: Okay, fill us in.
6: Uh, The guy who plays Dr. Constantine is very famous over here for playing Victor Meldrum in One Foot in the Grave, the archetypical grumpy old man, get off my lawn! Was he in
7: Coronation Street as well?
6: No, I don't think he's been in Coronation Street, to be honest with you.
7: Was he in Harry Potter?
6: No, uh, (laughs) no, he wasn't in Harry Potter.
7: Okay, well, let's see, then uh, that's why we don't know him.
2: He's not in this thing, Dr. Who, we don't know
5: who he is. He he was in this thing, you might have heard of it, Dr. Who? Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: this Perfect. was the first place I'd seen him since I'd seen him as Victor Melju. I think. Um, so it was a kind of a big change since he seems to have feelings now, at least a little. And I killed um, things again. No, no, no. It
5: was. <laughs> it, it's that kind of thing where you show how serious something is by getting uh, a big name actor in, have them effectively die to it. Oh, if you've seen Merlin, he's Gaius in that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but, with but that was after. Hair. Yes, that was after. But yeah, it, it, he turns up, lends a bit of gravitas and weight to it, then suffers a horrible fate, um, and is never heard from again. Or is he? We don't know until we watch the next episode. Yeah, we'll have to
7: see. So uh, that was uh, Segway School paying off. Uh, thank you, Stephen. We'll go ahead and move <laughs> on to our next episode, uh, which okay. is. Oh, do you have anything else home?
2: Oh, I just have uh, one more point about Jack's character, but it's not important. Go
7: well. We can co- we can cover that in uh, the next episode, which also deals with Jack. It's uh the Doctor dances. So, yeah, but I, it,
2: it was a it was just a point of in this episode. It's it was like well, no. it was the weak point for me in this episode.
7: Let us know what is it.
2: Uh, to me the weakest point in this, and it has a lot to do with Jack's character and what we see from Jack in the later seasons. Is I feel like he gives up the fact that it's a con too fast. Um, It was really crammed in there, and it always surprises me, especially going back and watching this episode, how fast that he admits it's a con. Um, But a lot of that, I think, is just for time and writing, because it's literally one of the last things that happens in the episode, as you realize that. I feel like it probably would have worked better in the second episode, and they discovered that as they were going along.
1: Well, I think once he was introduced to the Doctor and kind of worked out, they weren't time agents. You know, they kind of did have to get rid of it quickly, but... I can see your point.
2: It just doesn't feel very Jack-esque. It really Mm. pushes that coward fact that he's like, oh, I could get him really in trouble. Let's bail out now.
7: Well, it's the the introduction of the character. So we're not really... He hasn't really been... I hate to say the word nailed down yet because that sounds dirty. But uh, they haven't really (laughs) defined the character as of yet. So letting him be sort of a a cowardly character... You know, uh, eventually leads to uh, when, when he eventually leads to this more heroic character you know, you're able to overlook that as being sort of an initial flaw in the character
2: Uh, But like in the the workings of a narrative though, it just felt like really forced and fast for him to show all his cards that early on. Because like that was his only card in this entire thing. After that he could have been like well peace out guys, and then teleported out and gotten the freaking hell out of there. He still doesn't really know these people and who they are. So I I just feel like it was something that was so rushed for this episode.
7: Mm, True. Well if if, uh, we're Good on this one. Uh, I think uh, Hope actually has the synopsis for our next episode, The Doctor Dances. So if you're ready for it, Hope, go ahead and take it away.
2: Okay, this is my first time ever writing a synopsis, and I literally wrote this like seven hours ago. So (laughs) here I go. The Doctor Dances is the tenth episode of the first series. It was first broadcast on May 28, 2005. The episode was written by my personal favorite writer, Stephen Moffat, and directed by James Halls. Picking up where we left off in The Empty Child, the doctor, Rose, and Jack panic, being cornered by the gas mask zombies. Go to your room, cries the do- doctor with the authority of any parent. A tense moment passes as the zombies retreat to their beds while Jamie leaves Nancy in the fat people's homes. The doctor rejoices that it worked because it would have been terrible last words. Cue the credits. The doctor, uh, The doctor questions Jack about the workings of his con. Jack's Jack, Captain Jack, beautiful ass Hartness, says he finds space junk <laughs> and promotes it as valuable. He places it to be destroyed in a volatile area like Pompeii. This time happens to be the London Blitz. Not realizing his mistake, the Doctor spats back that it's volcano day, just as cl- uh, the all-clear sirens blare over the dark and burning city. The Doctor leads Rose and Jack to the room, uh, to the room of the first gas gas-max... Gas mask zombie victims. Blah. <sighs> Amidst the broken glass and reels of audio recording, a child's scribbles line the walls. The eerie voice of Jamie plays as the doctor and Rose realize they've heard the voice before. Jamie doesn't realize how powerful he is, but will grow stronger. Suddenly, they see the tape recorder. Uh, the recorder's tape has run out. They can still hear the voice. Jamie's within the room with them. In a banana switcheroo, the doctor swipes Jack's sonic blaster, and they escape through a hole in the wall. But the trio quickly realizes they're surrounded by gas-mask zombies as they crowd the hallway. Rose snatches back the blasters and sonics their way through the floor to the story story below. I have to beat you guys. It's so distracting. <laughs> sorry. Uh, the no, it's just the uh. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, the. Uh, Landing in another ward, the mask of uh, the, the mask of the living dead, they dra- landing in another ward of mask of living dead. They drive dive into a storage room to find themselves trapped. The doctor banter's with Jack, who suddenly teleports out, leaving Rose and the Time Lord for themselves. Nancy returns to her Oliver Twist esque lot and explains that she's going to the bomb site. The empty child always goes after her first, and that's why he's always coming. With that, she leaves. The Doctor and Rose receive a sudden transmission from Jack, who hasn't abandoned them completely. It will take time to rescue them, but, uh, but Jamie is looking for them. Jack plays music to make our heroes harder to track. In the scene that sets up Doctor and Rose's relationship for the rest of the series, Rose asks the Doctor to dance with her as they wait for Jack. The Doctor, who would much rather focus on saving their lives, flusters the most you'll ever see from Eccleston's Doctor. Just as they're dancing Jack teleports them to the ship The doctor uses the Chula ship's nanogenes to heal a small room in a bit of foreshadowing of what's to come On the ground Nancy has snuck into the bomb site she quickly she's quickly found by soldiers and handcuffed to a table with a nauseated soldier he already has the same cut on his hand that Jamie bears Nancy begins to, to begs begs to be <laughs> Nancy begs to be released as he transforms before her our heroes arrive in a flare of Murray Gold's battle music. Jack recognizes the guard and knows that he's the right type to distract him, but the, guards, the guard is already transforming into a gas mask zombie. Air sirens moan and the virus is now airborne. Between the coming bomb and the sickness, nothing is protecting them anymore, except a lullaby drifting through the yard. Nancy sings to the changed soldiers the do- as- while the doctor releases her. Jack tries to open the Trula ambulance and fails, setting off the alarm. The gas mask zombies awaken to defend the fallen cylinder and infiltrate the railway yard. The doctor realizes that the Chula ambulance wasn't empty. It held banana jeans that had never seen a human before. When they met the dead Jamie wearing a gas mask, they brought him back to life assuming that's how humans were supposed to look. And now they were infecting the world. Jack teleports to his ship, Volcano Day a bit too close for his comfort. A distraught Nancy claims it's all her fault. The doctor realizes that she wasn't Jamie's sister, but his mother. Jamie breaks through the gate, asking for his mummy, leaving the future of the human race in the hands of a single teenage mother. She embraces Jamie, and activating the nanogenes. As they study her, the doctor pleads "So figure out that Nancy is the real human, saying, Come on! Give me a day like this! Give me this one! He yanks off the mask, revealing that an alive and well Jamie completely cured of the virus. But as the bomb squills from the sky, Jack's ship zips from hiding, catching it in the air with his tractor beam. And the best well-placed penis metaphor, Jack is straddling the bomb, saying it's already commenced in detonation. He agrees to get, rid of, uh, to get rid of it for them and says his goodbye. The Doctor reprograms the nanogenes to cure the rest of the zombie horde. He joyfully hollers at one of my personal favorite lines from New Who, Everyone lives, Rose. Just this once. Everyone lives. Celebrating their victory, Rose and the Doctor heads back to the TARDIS, but Rose asks how Jack will escape the bomb. Jack resigns himself to his demise, having no way to escape the bomb now landing on his ship. With one, with a cotso in one hand and a provocative tail flowing from his lips, he settles in to wait his doom. Music filters in, and Jack realizes the TARDIS is parked from the back of the ship. He joins the Dancing Doctor and Rose, but never gets a chance to cut him in himself, though Captain Jack becomes the newest companion on the TARDIS. The end. Oh my god, that was so freaking long.
7: <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of wonder uh, with the uh, with Jack Henry and the TARDIS and wanting to dance, whether he uh, actually wanted to dance with the uh, Rose of the Doctor. So eh, doesn't matter; could have been both. Yeah. anything <laughs> willing. This was this is a really good uh, two part episode, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. Anyone else? Go ahead, please. This Uh, is actually
8: the point during my first watch-through where I I stopped watching for, like, four months just because I was, like, getting kind of bored. (laughs) Then I had to actually come back to it, and uh, I'm glad I did. This was sort of my my breaking point initially. But uh, I am glad I came back to it.
2: I mean, like I said uh, in the last one, this is my favorite of probably all the Eccleston episodes. Usually when I sit down to watch an Eccleston episode, I watch these two because, I mean, this season is riddled with some weak storylines. Like, I absolutely despise the Slovene I want to throw them off their voting, and that's why it always hurts me that after these really great episodes, we have another Slovene episode. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> we well, I thought Let's someone
8: was speak.
5: Quick. <laughs> call me Mr. gilly awesome and Feathercut's never broken by the sea. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Thankfully, no one has to know anything about the Skype conversation that we were typing in while, yeah. hope so yes, lovingly. Sam, I'm Mr. Big. They're very list. big. They're very big letters.
5: <laughs> this is gonna be great <laughs> for the listeners. <laughs>
8: uh, anyway, I think it's uh, best if we keep it that way. Yeah. Go I, bill, go.
9: I I forgot that Nancy was her mother when I was watching this last. Night. I'm like, oh my god, that's right. She's the mother. That, it's the whole. Are you my mummy?
5: What what a great issue to deal with in a family-based science fiction show to deal with uh, teenage pregnancy. (laughs) Well,
7: no. Honestly, honestly, I think that's 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 true. I mean, well, no. It's it, it is honestly. I mean, this is something, and it's it's not brought forth in a very hand-fisted way it's naturally integrated in the show and it is you know like I said before Doctor Who is meant to engage you know children and you know younger viewers into thinking about uh, the concept of the show and the fact that they bring this in in a sort of organic way and don't make it you know hand-fisted let's talk about teen pregnancy you know uh, <laughs> It's, it's a, again, a credit to Stephen Moffat as a writer that he doesn't make it, you know, he, he doesn't make it like a polemic about, you know, oh, uh, young people should be worried about their intercourse matters and they should not be getting pregnant at this young oh. time. So. This is
2: the best abstinence day because if, you get, if you're a teenager and you have a baby, it's going to turn into a gas mask zombie and try to destroy the world. I mean, this yeah. is the best one ever.
5: <laughs> it's, it's funny that we saying, say John, that, though. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a bit like what you're saying, on it, it being very lightly done. It's a bit like that bit in Vincent the Doctor where uh, the doctor sort of sits down very earnestly, and goes, you know, Vincent, mental illness isn't an in inversion. Of- oh, shut up with you.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> and just refuses to let him do like an after school special moment.
6: Um, well, it's not just that the teenage pregnancy. There was those two instances of homosexuality in this two-part mm-hmm. show that was handled incredibly Socking. subtly. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah,
6: not I mean, it's not just the rather overt where Jack flirts with all the servicemen, but there's also the implication of what the dad is doing with the butcher. And again, <laughs> nobody knock. beats. Yeah, nobody beats you just over the head with either. it. There's no neon sign. It's just really subtle how it's done, and it's it's exceptionally well done. I, I thought this. Yeah. There's a certain subtlety to this one that Moffitt seems to have lost recently.
7: Yeah, I can Sublties give
2: you that. Yeah, really I can agree with
5: that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was rewatching it for this, it struck me just how easily you could take Eccleston out and put Matt Smith into this. Things like the speech. Yeah, he, yeah. You know, if, if you're clever and I'm clever and he's reprogramming the nanogenes, like you can just imagine Matt Smith saying those exact same words.
6: And all the um, stuff with the banana.
5: Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think he would probably play the banana scene even better.
6: Yeah. There's there's a certain there is a criticism that Eccleston wasn't as good at the comedic beats, like maybe he gurned too much or he just flashed his smile. I personally think he was very appropriate for this season, and I think there's a reason he's my second favourite is because he didn't stick around too long i don't think eccleston could have pulled off the lightness that matt smith pulls off but the whole point of this entire series is he's not a light doctor he is very dark he is very moody and he was perfectly played by eccleston for this one year and i think there's something to be said for going in doing what you're doing and getting the hell out of dodge before it can become old because there are a lot of people who think a tenant stayed too long And now we've got the flip side with, has Smith not stayed long enough? But with Eccleston, he did one perfect season. Yes, there are flaws within that season. There are stories that aren't as good as the others. But he is perfect for that entire 13-episode run. He came in, he brought the show back, he showed that they were taking it seriously, he played it for all it's worth, and then he said, right, I've done my bit, I'm getting the hell out of here. And I think there's something to be said for that.
2: I, I, I have yeah. to agree with you. Um, I think if he had one more season, I would have loved to see how he would grow with the Doctor because there's a very huge difference between Rose and the season finale of this episode that completely slips my brain at the moment. Um, I, I think Christopher Eccleston's Doctor is very funny and very great when he's lighthearted, and I would love to see him develop into at least a second season to watch him grow as a character because i mean he really is a, a fun actor when he wants to be and tries to be and that's one reason why i love this episode this this two-parter so much is it's probably one of the lightest times we see the doctor and he you know i think a lot of that is how he bounces off jack and rose as well in this okay i'll shut up now i no,
8: agree no, I, I, we... I, I i like him hell of a lot too um it's just it i I love the fact that he's kind of dark at the beginning i mean you you really have nowhere to go if it's if you're reintroducing it and it's going to be all whimsy from the get-go i think you gotta let people know that this is a guy that's seen a lot of shit and he's having a tough time at the moment dealing with it until rose comes into his life and takes him on that that journey for those 13 episodes so you won't get any argument uh, and, and from me. It,
6: Andrew. And at the end of it, it completes the metaphor that Rose makes him a changed man. Literally. <laughs> Literally. Yeah.
2: But his also he's also so important because it always makes me mad when I hear people skip Eccleston. You wouldn't have Tennet being who he is with Tenet if not for Eccleston. And then same thing later on with Matt Smith. They really these three doctors have really built well on each other with except for a, a tiny criticism i have with matt smith but it's okay but i think going from the war-torn soldier to the healed funny guy who's kind of you know got in a relationship he's starting to turn around he gets on his feet and then he loses pretty much everyone between donna and rose he gets destroyed destroyed again to this loner where he has to rebuild himself with amy i mean i think these three doctors really build well in on each other I would argue you don't have
6: the success of the show without Eccleston. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very difficult to, oh sorry, it's very easy to underestimate just how important his casting was. Like I say, it shut the tabloids up. One fell swoop, this is who the Doctor is. And suddenly they had nothing to make jokes about. Because it's like, oh, they've cast him. Well, we can't make jokes about Ken Dodd being the Doctor anymore, can we? Because they've cast a proper actor. And he brought a gravitas to it that it wouldn't have had had they cast anyone of lesser stature. Tennant couldn't have come in and done this from the beginning, as Eccleston did. Matt Smith certainly couldn't. They built on what he did. And it does hurt me when people just kind of gloss over what Eccleston did. Because he was incredibly important to its success. The show was remarkably popular out the gate. It didn't just become successful when David Tennant started doing it. And Eccleston did that. And the fact that he's not coming back to the 50th, I personally am grateful. I think it's the best thing he could have done. He's got this little perfect body of work. He said everything he had to say. He moved on. I wasn't annoyed that he wasn't coming back for the 50th anniversary. Because I don't think he's got anything to prove.
2: I, I am. That really upsets me. Because for, for a new Whovian like me, this is my first big anniversary. I've never had one. I mean, this is my big one. And I, because I never had the five doctors, the three doctors, or any of those. So I wanted my three doctors got together the same way everybody had their five doctors, you know? And so for me, it was really. Hurtful, almost, because for us New Whovians, this is our first big one.
7: Well, since you since you mentioned and we kind of hinted at the fiftieth, has there been any any more talk about what or who's going to be able to make it for the fiftieth?
6: I know Jack away from everything. Okay, I don't want to know. Yeah. I want to sit down I, and watch it on the day, knowing nothing. Mm, literally
5: Mm -hmm. what was just said that's the first I've heard of it and I just I want to watch it and I want it to be that I'm glad I've heard it said that they're doing a lot of filming indoors which means they're able to keep a lot of secrets and I want it to stay that way cool yeah
8: I feel the same way I just bring it on whatever it is let me enjoy it even though I gotta wait six months
5: there's more than enough podcasts that will speculate and go over every single bit of rumour and news about it well and the thing with the uh with
7: Moffat running the show, I don't think we're going to have to worry about you know, it turning out to be something that we're not going to enjoy. Uh, pretty much everything Moffat has done uh, throughout the series has been just uh, really amazing writing-wise. So The Doctor, the
5: Widow, and the Wardrobe. Okay. <laughs> Granted. Uh,
6: Everyone has an off day. Yeah. You can't bat
7: 1,000 all the time, so... Uh. Actually,
2: can we talk about moffat's writing in this episode and how it now reflects with matt smith because i mean this is really a good indication of every time because i think it was andrew saying that everything is done subtly in this episode that doesn't play off in matt smith's was that you andrew
6: yeah it's it's not that it doesn't play off in matt smith i think moffat it was more subtle in this episode than he has been but, in some of his more recent episodes.
2: You have to keep in mind, when Moffat's only writing, you know, a couple episodes a season through uh, Russell T's Davis era, and he's, then he's pretty much has a hand in every episode in Smith's, it's harder to be subtle when you're there all the time.
6: Yeah, yeah I'm not disputing that he's probably much harder worked now than he was back then.
2: But, I mean, I, th- I think this is a great indication of, like, what we get in Matt Smith's, and... I, I I personally love Moffat. He's my favorite Doctor Who writer. But granted, my first two episodes of Doctor Who that I ever watched was Girl in the Fireplace and then Blink. So I'm in the show because of Moffat. And it was always kind of like, whenever I watched Refl T. Davis episodes, I was like, why is this not the same as those others? <laughs> One of these things, are not like the other. So I just, I really enjoy Kind of the more human side in the midst of this big world of Doctor Who. When it comes to its writing, no matter how creepy his fucking is, I'm gonna stop talking because I always try to. Really- no, no, it's so, awesome. I think, I
5: think- Did we catch the bad wolf reference.
1: Yep,
5: Doctor
1: Strange love. Penis. <laughs> penis. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, I, I like the like Dave just said. I like the Doctor Strange love. No- the Doctor Strange love nod. I thought um, that was quite good oh you're talking
7: about the bomb I thought you were talking
6: about Jack's
2: penis
7: I'm sorry <laughs> I, I would know it never talk about Jack's
2: penis the bomb is his penis he, the yes, bomb. he, calls,
9: it, he calls it bad wolf this uh. is bad wolf <laughs> Oh, God.
2: See, can
5: only fit seven letters Too early that. for this shit. <laughs> Mr. Gilly-Gilly, I'll the cat's down a by the sea. I'll remind you. Um, <laughs> but there are three scenes in this episode that really stand out for me as excellent pieces of writing. And in one case, an excellent piece of, oh, shit. Uh, so I'll start with the oh, shit moment. And that's the yeah. scene with the typewriter. Um, and the oh shit moment came because the episode was running short and Stephen Moffat needed they could see it was going to be short they needed to write a scene and Stephen Moffat wasn't allowed anything he basically had the actress Florence Hoth uh, some kids and that was it and he said well can I have this no Okay, can I have this no and eventually he managed to negotiate a typewriter (laughs) and which is why that scene's in there and even though it's Philly it's great it really ratchets up the tension um, the second one is the Doctor and Rose in the storage cupboard dancing, or, or sort of talking about dancing. Sorry, didn't look like talking. Didn't <laughs> feel like dancing. Anyway,
8: it's really... a metaphor for sex, anyway.
5: Yep, absolutely. Anyways. Well, basically, the episode is the Doctor fucks.
8: <laughs> uh, that so be many. Title.
9: So many species, so little time. <laughs>
5: But he <laughs> so little time. He's a time lord. No, that's uh, what
2: they say about Jack. Uh.
5: But but the the one that really just it ticks my boxes and makes me very happy is Jack getting ready to die, and he's in his ship and he's getting his martini and everything and he's sort of being brave in the face of it, and then he there's sort of. The TARDIS is just very silently materialised latched onto his ship and I just love that bit, uh, they go and they save him I love and the, bit the bit way executioners. that's done <laughs> sorry?
1: I love the bit about the executioners
4: oh yeah <laughs> <In that
1: onesie. laughs> they kept in touch
5: oh yes mm. lovely couple <laughs> <laughs> they might have I, I been see... a tall short fat thin gay anglican bishops soldiers <laughs>
2: I I, I think you mentioned probably one of the most important scenes, which is the one in the cupboard, because that sets up the Doctor's relationship with Rose for the rest of her run, as well as, like, it's the beginning of how, you know, he reacts to Martha because of Rose, and Donna because of Rose, and Amy because of Rose. I mean, that is probably, to me, the beginning scene where it's really him and Rose starting to have that relationship that will, you know, run through the rest of New Who.
9: Okay, but then it's creepy because he gives her a bicycle when she's age 12. <laughs> <laughs> eh.
2: There's that no Santa that, Claus. That, really? You know, like, seriously, be serious, though. It's, it's probably one of the biggest scenes that's setting up in the rest of New room. It really is. Mm-hmm. It sets up their entire relationship that affects it, like the rest of the show. Am I the only one that sees this? <laughs>
8: No, it's definitely there and they were definitely trying to do that and 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 make it a romance i mean to take and i'm and i'm sure for a lot of older who fans that was a your mileage may vary aspect of it uh it didn't bother me cuz let's be honest they never did anything on screen together uh, so you could always just be oh they were good friends if you really wanted to be until the you know parallel dimensions and all that but uh it didn't bother me. I I, I, I kind of liked it um, as my first real exposure to Who. I I, I don't have the the prejudices and the in the bias of the older series to to look back on, um, but I could see how it might rub a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, yeah, what, just,
2: are, what do you old Whovians think about
8: that? I was going to ask that. <laughs> in my day, the Doctor was celibate.
7: <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Oh, Obviously not, because the first Doctor actually had a granddaughter, so obviously yeah. he, he hit up, it pretty much. Shut up, be quiet, angle.
6: <laughs> and Peter Derry was shacked up with Nissa and Tegan, so. Uh,
7: mm. uh,
6: they were
1: shacked up with each other. It
6: was yeah, I, even it. better.
7: Yeah, I think I think <laughs> Thomas mentioned last episode that uh, even though uh, Tegan and Sarah, or not Tegan and Sarah,
4: that's
7: <laughs> Tegan and Nissa. <laughs> Well Tegan and Sarah would share the same bed. Yeah. Tegan and Nyssa <laughs> share the same room. But they only had one bed in there, so I guess they were like Tegan and Sarah.
9: So well, there you go. You know those you know those round panels, they probably pop out and he put on his Golden May outfit like the watcher. I like to watch.
7: Uh, <laughs> okay, this is degenerating. Do we have do we have any final
6: any final thoughts about the Yeah, are we are we gonna talk about Eccleston leaving? Yeah, sure. Because I can't imagine we'll be doing another Christopher Eccleston episode anytime soon. Well, yeah, we'll eventually get around to him again. But yeah, go ahead and hit that. Um, The first thing that I said to my wife when it was announced Eccleston was cast was, what an excellent choice. I swear to you, the second thing I said to her was, he won't stay for long. Because he does have and had at that time a reputation of being one of those actors who didn't stick around. I think he'd done, was it one series of Our Friends in the North before he buggered off? He did one series of Cracker and he only came back for the second series of that because they promised him a good death scene. So he was always an actor that if he did television, he didn't stick around for very long. So it wasn't a surprise that he only stuck for 13 episodes. His regeneration would have been wonderful if the BBC could have kept their mouth shut. I think it was just, it was either his first or second episode. They announced that he was leaving. If they'd have kept their mouth shut about that, you would have had a wonderful regeneration sequence that people would have known nothing about because it didn't have the whole furore around it when an actor leaves the role that it has now because it had only just come back. So I think they really could have kept that secret if they tried to.
5: Well, it was, it was their colossal fuck up. Yes, um, it, was. it was entirely the BBC screwing it up. Um, and that, probably more than anything, has caused the, the bad blood between Christopher Eccleston and the BBC, which is why he's never really come back and done anything regarding Doctor Who hmm. at which
6: all. Because he, he did actually go on talk shows to promote it, which he's never done for anything else. Oh, well, yes, he,
5: I, I would imagine that was probably contractual above all else and if it wasn't then Russell T. Davis would have talked him into it he only—he really only took the job because it was Russell T. Davis and he was very open about that I mean someone else doing this show he wouldn't have taken he wouldn't have been interested in the job um, but yeah it, it was just a colossal fuck up so we've had an episode out and then the doctor's leaving before we've barely got to know him
6: Oh, look at of people typing,
7: typing. I'm sorry, guys.
6: <laughs> That's like mice
9: running
7: across. <laughs> well, uh, I think we're kind of winding down. Is there anything that we'd like uh, everyone's thoughts about uh, Eccleston and the sort of pantheon of Doctor Who and how he sits with uh, everyone?
2: The Sonic Screwdriver so, is still a crutch. Eh. It's a, yeah. I'll like give you that. I to
1: play with the Sonic Disruptor, though. It's one of my favorite bits. Mm-hmm. Where they're just ready to battle off against the well, incoming uh, hordes
7: again. Uh, unfortunately, I hate to bring this up. This is sort of a it's sort of a penis waving match. You know, what have you got? Yeah. I've got a gun. What have you got? I've got a screwdriver. I've got a Sonic. But
1: I've got a Sonic. It's a screwdriver. The <laughs> thing is, like, he doesn't actually use it. I don't think in this episode he gives it the well, um, if you make rose. Darkwire,
2: come back.
1: Yeah, but that's it. He doesn't use it he uses yeah, his hands to zap say, everything.
2: Like like it, it just seems like the sonic screwdriver becomes useful when they need to. Now granted, I like this talk that Nancy and Rose are having during that scene. I I think that's the more important side of it cuz something that's mm. really good about this episode is a lot of the really human moments that happen. It's because it's in the middle of World War 2. I mean, this is like the one of the darkest times in human history balanced with this is like one of the darkest times of England. And it really does seem ab- absolutely hopeless, for, for especially for someone so young like Nancy, you know, she just lost her child, she has all these mouths to feed, she has this ragtag team of people who are relying on her, and she could die any minute, you know? And how hopeless does that seem? And here's Rose, who's from the future, going, you make it, you're gonna make it. I mean, that's such just such a great thing.
5: For me, this episode stands at the end of the... I I like to break the Eccleston season into three parts. And uh, it took me a while to sort of um, get used to this, because I really, as a whole, for a long time, didn't like the Eccleston run. I I felt it was... The show was too busy trying to find its fee, and it never really did enough with the Doctor, and Rose seemed to do everything, and the Doctor just stood there. And then I, 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 I I thought about it a lot more. So, for me, the first part is... The first five episodes, the doctor battle damaged straight from the time war, straight from his regeneration, meets someone, tries not to get involved, but lets someone in and things seem to start going well. Future, past, defeat an alien invasion in London. Things seem to be going well. Then the shit starts hitting the fan. The Daleks are back. He thought they were all gone. Um, he takes another human in. Turns out that he's a bit crap. And so he gets rid of him. He's like, oh, not all humanity is great. Then Rose fucks up in Father's Day which makes it even worse and just when everything seems to be going bad this episode comes along and he wins everybody lives people don't have to die around him and people argue about oh well he didn't save everyone who died in the Blitz that's not what the story's about he's there undoing the damage that Jack caused the the blitz if you like it's a fixed point in time he can't save those people because they died as part of history and then it all starts going to shit again bad wolf rears its head in the next episode then the daleks are back once more and the reason why he regenerates is because he realises he's locked into this cycle and the way out is to regenerate to leave his damaged self behind and give us a big smiley teethy tenant (laughs) but this is the one absolute victory in the series that's not tainted by anything
2: yeah.
1: And, and the woman's leg grows back. It's what's possible you <laughs> miscounted. Yeah.
6: Uh, is it possible you miscounted?
1: <laughs> there is a war on.
5: <laughs> Great I line. Love. I
6: don't
2: know. I, I could honestly talk a long time about this episode. I mean, we don't have the time, but I would, I would love to talk about the historical parts of this episode, what it means, like in the context of history, break down each character break down, I mean, like, there's a lot in this episode that we just don't have time to talk
4: about.
2: Yeah. No one, uh, personally, for me, though, no. I love breaking down characters and how it sets in history with Doctor Who, because, I mean, but that's just me, and we never have time to do that. Well,
7: unfortunately, you know, even though we've got extended, we can do extended podcast, we gotta kinda keep this short, because we're all, we all have, sadly, other things to do, but uh, anyone else want to have any final comments or final notes? Fantastic.
6: <laughs>
8: thanks, Bill. Yeah. You're fuck
6: yourself. <laughs> Fantastic. There we
8: go.
1: Excellent. Oh, crap. Wrong <laughs>
7: Well, yeah, that's the wrong one. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back uh, hopefully next month with uh, another episode of Who True Freaks. We'll talk to you guys later.
4: Bye, you guys.
7: Bye. 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 Okay. Bye.
3: You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Visit our brand new website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2 True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find 2 True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for 2 True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. Freaks.